Hello and welcome to On the Battlefield with Father Michael, Mark Antoni, and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and the sufferings of life. Father, good to be with you. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find us on social media and online? Outstanding. Yes, thank you. Uh, on the battlefield, you can find us, of course, on Anchor FM. That is our main platform, and that shares out to a variety of so a variety of media platforms. We are on Apple Podcasts, uh, iTunes. We are on Spotify and on social media, Facebook and Instagram. On the battlefield podcast, uh, you can just search for that there, and you can listen to us. At, uh, at any of these uh, at any of these online venues and uh, as far as our Facebook page we also share other related content on there so if you're enjoying the conversation here uh, do also check us out there and between episodes that'll help keep sort of the uh, the momentum going so anchor FM Spotify iTunes Apple podcasts and Facebook and Instagram and on the battlefield podcast Thank you Father Michael. Uh, so today we're going to talk about something uh, I think probably new to a lot of people. I had never really uh, taken psyops to uh, to heart to any real degree, but we're going to talk about psychological operations, uh, kind of from a military perspective. Father Michael has some experience with them. Um, but there are three different types of uh, psyops as they were. Uh, and uh, so we have the white, gray, and black. And I think that we're going to focus in most on the black today. But why don't you give everybody a brief description so we all are all on a level playing field as we go into this discussion on black psyops? Yeah, thank you. So basically, um, and and real brief, you know, here's my my own background on it because I was not a a, a psyop specialist in the military. So I want to make that clear. So if we have any of our listeners. Our, uh, our PSYOPs guys, you can feel free to correct me on anything. Um, however, so my MOS, my military specialty was civil affairs, and that's a very complex, unconventional job where you are going into the civilian population in small five, six-man teams and making things happen that are favorable to the overall military objective with the ultimate goal of creating a scenario where insurgency is just unthinkable to the local populace. Um, so to that end, when we go to AIT, AIT is your job training, advanced individual training. It is where you learn your job after basic training. Civil affairs and psychological operations soldiers, um, and I don't know, things may have changed now, but at least back in 1999, um, civil affairs and psychological operations soldiers train together. We go to the same barracks, the first half of our AIT is uh, the same, it's together. And then about halfway through, you, you split off and you get specific. So you become familiar, at least passingly familiar with each other's discipline. And that's important because in the field, we do work closely together. Um, you know, at least back then, we were all together under the USA KPOC, uh, United States Civil Affairs and Psychological Operations Command. Um, 
so I, again, I have been, I ETS'd in 2006. So I don't know if any restructuring has occurred, but that's the way it was back then. Uh, anyway, so there's three types of psyops. And this is important because psyops is the use of psychological operations is the mass use of information in order to manipulate and coerce. Um, it, it can be, I mean, obviously you're manipulating and coercing to what you believe is a good dire- a good direction in accordance with your purposes, which you deem right. Okay, so uh, white psyops involves the use of factual information to sway the population, the target population, in the direction you want them to go. So essentially, you get them to do what you want to do by telling them the truth and convincing them of it. Um, there's some of that gray psyops mixes in deception with that. There's truth. There's also deception. It's not an all out lie, but it is misleading. And, uh, that, you know, it's there you begin to get into the subterfuge black psyops is the use of all out outright misinformation and lies in order to coerce and manipulate. Um, it is, you know, it is, it is illegal for the United States military to use black psyops on the American population, it is perfectly acceptable to use it in war against the enemy. Um, and there's a couple of instances here. And and before, and I want our leaders, uh, I'm sorry, I want our, re- our listeners, I almost said readers, I want our listeners to hang on because there is a real connection to our spiritual life that I think if you bear with me, you're going to get a lot out of, especially going into Lent and and everything that we talk about with the discernment of thoughts and the spiritual warfare of the Lenten period. This is a very battlefield topic, so do stick with me. Well, there's two instances of black psyops that I'd like to put in front of us to sort of illustrate what it does. So the first instance is a successful use of black psyops on the battlefield. The second instance is a related, however unsuccessful, use of black psyops. It is a failure of black psyops to achieve its goals. Um, so the first instance, so in World War II, the Axis powers, uh, the Nazis, successfully used black psyops for a time against the, uh, the U.S. military forces. The Axis powers put out Black PSYOPs propaganda that to the American soldiers that in their absence, um, that in their absence, notable celebrities in America were having openly having a field day with soldiers' wives. That, you know, the wives had, of course, had to leave the home. They had to support the family. They were working and the celebrities were taking advantage of the opportunity uh, for romantic liaisons on a grand scale with soldiers' wives. And this so demoralized and derailed many of the troops that the, that the U.S. military had to address it. It was a serious, uh, it, it, it dealt a serious blow. Um, obviously, it didn't turn the tide of the war, but it demoralized them. And, and it did what it set out to do, and so much so that you know the command, the military command had to address it. It couldn't just brush it off. So that's you know, that's an example of the outright lie working. And I want you to keep that in your mind. So then you fast forward to 1990. And then uh, what happens? Yeah. Well, obviously, right. The, the We well, didn't get better at this over the course of uh, 50 years. Well, we did. 
We got a oh. lot better at it. Uh, oh, I mean, we this did. Is, oh, so yeah. this wasn't the Germans that failed. What do you? I'm sorry. It wasn't the Germans or the Americans that failed. The so it was in the nineties. No, the no, no. Uh, so now we're jumping to Desert Storm with oh. Saddam Hussein, and oh, here we have an, failed. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, multiple times. He he does a lot of that throughout history. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, he did he does he does a lot of that. Um so in any case, in any case, so uh I don't know if our listeners remember a film, a George Clooney film that came out in the late nineties about Desert Storm called Three Kings. And Three Kings is one of the few films to feature civil affairs in a movie. Um and part of the reason it doesn't get featured is it's it's not a glamorous job. You know, it's not infantry, it's not artillery, you're not like uh, doing, you know, shooting flaming arrows over burning Humvees and take it's you're it's a lot of backroom chess gaming, you know, uh, so it, it's, it's hard to make a movie about it that's exciting to watch, but it's a it's an incredibly uh, fascinating job. And in any event, so You'll notice if you go back and watch that film, or you jump on YouTube and watch clips, that their that their their jeeps and their humvees and their vehicles. A lot of the guys had Bart Simpson dolls strapped to the front, right? They had Bart Simpson strapped to the radiator, and that actually happened during the Gulf War. So during the Gulf War, nineteen ninety, Saddam Hussein, of course, as we know, he knew that he was far outgunned, and um, he was he was far outgunned, and so he took a playbook, he took a play from the Nazis, and he said, I want to demoralize the American troops. I know, I will tell them, I will put out psyops, I will put out black psyops to their troops, just like Hitler did in the, in the Second World War, and tell them that the most famous of American celebrities is out there dating their wives and having fun with their wives, and they should go home and fix their families, Right. Uh, so he set out to demoralize the troops by telling them that the most famous celebrity in America was actively dating any number of their wives. Um, he didn't do his fact checking well because the celebrity he chose was Bart Simpson. And he, <laughs> the, yeah, his regime actually put out to the American forces that Bart Simpson was dating their wives, which of course was high comedy out in, uh, out in the desert. And so like, rolling with the joke, the troops started strapping Bart Simpson dolls to their vehicles. And, and you see that in the film. Uh, you see that in the film Three Kings. And what I'm getting at is that in each case, though, the outright use of lies was intended to produce a false crisis. You have a battlefield scenario. You have a wartime scenario. And if my if the opponent is focused on that, uh, you know, they can they can cause damage. Real bad things could happen. There is a chance that they could win. So what Black Psyop seeks to do is create a false crisis that they feel compelled to respond to. And in failing to and in, and I'm sorry, and in diverting their energies to respond to the false crisis, uh, they have to neglect the real battlefield crisis in front of them. That's what it's intended to do. And the reason I bring this up is it is my contention that that is precisely what sin does to us all the time. It creates a series of false crises where the accuser, our enemy, our only real enemy, by the way, the devil, the, the demons are our real enemy. People are not our enemy. Um, 
where the devil creates any number of false crises that we then divert from our mission to respond to. So if you think about times where you've lost your temper, you know how how imminent, how urgent it feels to blow up and get angry and lash out and do all sorts of spiteful things and say spiteful things. But if you wait and calm down, suddenly it's not so urgent anymore. What's a false crisis? It's a false flag. Um, you know, same thing. I mean, no matter what the passion you overcome with is, whether it's, whether it's lust or envy or you, or gluttony, right? Like you just, you, you've got, you want that second whole pizza. Yeah. But if you wait 15 minutes, you'll realize you're full. All, every sin can really be looked at through the lens of black psyop creating a false flag that diverts us from the battlefield reality of seeking to be a, a good soldier of Jesus Christ and expend our energies elsewhere and then you know cause us real loss in that demoralization. It causes us to lose battles we didn't even need to be fighting. And by the way, that language of good soldier of Jesus Christ, that's from Paul's letter to Timothy, where he tells him, Timothy, my son, I can't remember if it's 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy, but he says, Timothy, my son, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, but rather his aim is to please the one who has enlisted him. And he and then he goes on tell soldier, to tell Timothy to behave as this good soldier who does not get entangled in civilian pursuits, but seeks to aim, please the one who has uh, who has enlisted him. Well, and then you get to our baptismal service, and at the beginning, the one being baptized is referred to as the uh, the soldier of Christ who has been newly enlisted, and that language actually repeats several times throughout the baptismal service. So it's a really central analogy. And what are those civilian pursuits that St. Paul is warning us about? Well, I mean, those are the false crises of passion and sin. Look, look at every pathos, every one every sin that leads us astray. Which one of them is actually urgent? Like it's not, it, they're not real. They're not real crises. They are false flags. So, I mean, you know, it's one thing to give into the passion of anger and blow up, you know, at your family about something, and then you've got to apologize because you've sinned. It's another thing to be, uh, to, righteously withstand some real injustice. We know those aren't the same things. I mean, the biological process of being worked up is the same, but we know that's not the same animal. And so that's a real look, I believe, at the uh, at the false urgency of sin. Uh, so um, that's what I want us to talk about. That's what I want us to look at because we're heading into Lent and we're being asked to deal with our thoughts and our passions and our souls and the devil is a much better psyops specialist than Saddam Hussein. He knows how to make it look like a real crisis. Um, but he is a liar and the father of lies. And so like being able to discern that and not get derailed on the battlefield, but instead to please the one who has enlisted us is actually a very that's actually a very urgent task for us as Christians. Yes, it is an urgent <clears throat> task. And I, I know that this is not uh, technically a black psyop, but it has, it's, it's definitely demonic and it has the same intended goal of uh, 
calling the herd. But in in Second Kings, when Sennacherib comes to undo Jerusalem, and he says to Hezekiah and to the people of Jerusalem, listen, guys, uh, you've been deceived. Your God has failed. So what you need to do is stand down, bail on your God, turn your backs on him, and come come worship uh, Sennacherib, the, the king of the Assyrians. Um, so obviously not a black op because he probably believed that God didn't exist, but the tool of the devil is still the same. Whether he's using it to defeat us through our own anger and, and the lie of the urgency of a sin, or through our own fears, he's, he's leveraging our biases, he's leveraging our passions, and at the end of the day, his goal is to rob us of our souls and to remove us from our intended purpose of worshiping God and turning our hearts to the worship of him or ourselves. Um, but yeah. all very sneaky, very insidious tactics, uh, these psyops that the devil uses uh, in attempts to, to destroy our souls, to destroy our families, to destroy our communities. Well, yeah. And, you know, so let's, but like, let's look at this from both ends, because here's the thing. We're looking at, as I said, the devils are only real. The demons are our real enemy, not other people. So, um, when we're looking at Sennacherib and we're looking at the forces of Israel, we want those two groups to wear the white hats and the black hats, right? We want them to be the good guys versus bad guys. But if we look at that and say, as human beings, the devil's the enemy of all of us, which means the devil isn't on the side of Sennacherib either. He also wants him to die and perish eternally, right? I mean, you know, yeah. so, so yeah, where is using black psyops on Sennacherib and, right. and Sennacherib is using just plain old in your face psyops against Israel, but all with the same intended purpose of the destruction of man. Yes. Turning us from the one true God. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, from, so it's it, the, the devil knows who is actually going to win this conflict and who is actually uh, going to come out on top. And he knows that the, that Yahweh can't be withstood. Um, but he goes and he outright lies to Sennacherib. And now, you know, the, the demons just sit back and watch as a bunch of wayward humans on his side get slaughtered. I mean, that, that that's a field day for them. Um, you know, ultimately, and, and this is, this is where, this is where we really have to take, we really have to take our situation, our, our position as uh, advancing God's kingdom, advancing God's kingdom as part of his host, uh, as part of his forces really seriously, because, you know, when when Jesus, for example, questions Legion, uh, when Jesus questions Legion and, and before he casts him out, the demons say to him, son of man, are you here to torment us before the time? In other words, the, the unclean spirits and the demons all know that they're beat, they're done. They just want to cause as as much damage as humanly possible. Uh, or as uh, as uh, one priest I, in a podcast I was listening to put it, you know, the the decisive battle is also not the end of the war. Like it takes a time for the war to stop, but the decisive battle has happened. They know they're finished, but they're going to keep, they're going to go down swinging. So with that in mind, 
um, they don't really care who they deceive, which goes a lot to how we should look at those who are caught up in their lies and their lies as Christians. So, I mean, like going back to your example of Sennacherib, uh, I mean, Israel has to defend against this threat. On the other hand, a, a certain degree of, of pity and compassion is warranted. Like these other people are only standing across the battlefield facing us because they've been lied to. <laughs> they've been lied to in a fatal way. Uh, and they've been lied to systematically in a fatal way for generations. And now it's going to have mortal consequences. And, and as as Christians, when we look at the systematic effect of the black op of psyops and of sin, it's like we gotta like that's that's the end game of it. It it's to cause it's not like to just cause us to get a little sad. It's to cause us to die, either in this world or the next. And if the devil had his preference, both. Yeah, max destruction, baby. Uh, that's really the the goal of the game, isn't it? From his perspective, maximum casualties. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the thing. So as the image and likeness of God, like you can't fight God. Like there's no like there's no winning that fight. The devil knows he can't win that fight. But he can strike out at the image of God. So think about that. Like um like to strike out especially in the ancient world to strike the image of the ruler was the same as an attack on that ruler. And we get a sense of that too like when when like I remember when I was a kid there was the big debate over whether burning the flag uh, should be a legal form of protest or not. And, and of course, you know, the patriots uh, of the country will say that um, it's entirely unacceptable. Well, why? Well, because by, by striking out at the symbol of the country, you're striking at the country. I mean, that's why if you, you know, if you look at the Shah's Iran, they'll do that. So same with uh, the three holy youths and, uh, the Babylonian king. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so, so go flesh that. I, I think I know where you're going. Flesh that out. Yeah. Well, you remember from that story that, that um, Nebuchadnezzar had been uh, talked into by his leaders in order to destroy these faithful young men, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, and Daniel, the four, and Daniel's the fourth. Your pronunciation order, is amazing. You got Daniel right. Go on. Daniel. Daniel. <laughs> no, you're good. Daniel was the one you said. Go on. Hey, man. I'm <laughs> trying. I'm trying. Uh, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just messing with you. Go ahead. So, so in order to, to destroy these, these three young men, uh, the advisors of the king devised a way that, that these people should no longer be able to bow to their god, but that it should be a law to bow before the image of the king. And they wouldn't bow before the king, and this infuriated Nebuchadnezzar because it was like a diss on him. It was a breaking of the law. So what did he do? He threw them into the furnace, and that is the the abbreviated version of the story. But it's the same idea that by not bowing before the image of the king, they were disrespecting the king and his law. It was a it was a double penalty, which is why he struck them with such fury. Yeah. And, and I mean, and we use, I mean, 
I, I got I, well, all right. So I don't want to derail this into a political talk, but like I mean, it works in both the positive and the negative. So like uh, I can remember being in Rochester and it, there was a there was a park uh, was it Park Street or Park Avenue? Uh, it's it's been a while, but some of my favorite restaurants were on that street. And there was this one uh, diner. It was Greek owned, and, and the food was excellent. So we used to like to go there. Great breakfast. Um, that, that is a, that's giants restaurant. If you are in Rochester, hit it up. Best breakfast in town. Uh, any case. Um, so as it stands though, like you'd see certain recognizable multicolored flag stickers on the different windows of different restaurants. Well, what would not putting that little flag sticker say to those groups? Well, they'll take it as you're attacking our group. Not just that you're abstaining from our movement, but you're not with us. And if you're not with us, you're against us. So the alternate is, well, if you put this up, you must be with us and not against us. But I mean, there you have like, well, I mean, the, you know, the, I guarantee you sticker or not, uh, the management at any of those restaurants just want to, you know, they want to take everybody's money. Like they want you to come in and spend their money and buy their product and tell other people to come in and spend their money and buy their product and they want to make a profit. That's what all of them want to do. They don't really care about what you're doing in your personal life. They, they're like, come in and buy our food. Um, however, well, what does the symbol indicate? The symbol indicates allegiance. The symbol indicates uh, familiarity and sideship. And again, if you are to attack this symbol, you're attacking what the symbol represents. And every one of those groups, even though they're probably, they would probably, many of these, you know, whether or not they're theistic in any shape or form, would all understand their particular symbol to work that way. So whatever your symbol is, you'll understand it to work that way. Because if someone attacks it, you'll take it that personally, even though you're, you know, you're not bruised or bloodied. Um, so the devil does that through sin. It's like, well, I can't. I can't box with God, but I can attack his image. I can attack his image and likeness, and I can hobble his image and likeness, and I can get his image and likeness to hobble itself through servitude to me. And that's the black psyops of sin. It's like, I may not be able to directly get in the ring with you, God, but I can hobble your forces, your image and likeness, by convincing them to go into servitude with me through a series of false crises. And make no mistake, um, make no mistake, the epistles of the New Testament also say, that which overcomes a man enslaves him. So every time we lose those little battles, those little non-urgent crises of sin, we're saying that's our master. I can't help it. This is my master. And that's a really, it, it, because nothing's spiritually neutral, that is a really disastrous thing to say. And I think if we were to, as Christians, look at our choices through that lens, we would make very different choices. I mean, even right down to like the things we gossip about at coffee hour. Or the th or or the snarkiness amongst ourselves, or uh, you know whatever. Like we make really different choices. I'm like, well, what am I saying is my master here? Who who am I really seeking to please? What 
what has enlisted me and what am I pleasing and what pursuits am I getting entangled in? And is it a false flag? And man, we don't in our, we no longer look at things with that urgency, but the father of the church did and the scriptures did. And if we want to have anything recognizably Christian in our communities, we must as well. Yeah. I mean, and the devil is a crafty being. He, he he has his demons they they watch us they study us and they use our weaknesses against us i mean how many times have you had a false narrative that you have told yourself over the course of your life that eventually became a bias and it, and that false narrative became the narrative and because it became the narrative, you started to live your life according to what used to be a false narrative, because uh, at some point you had become disintegrated and lazy in, in your spiritual walk. What do I mean by that? I mean, we see this in, we've talked about this before, that it's the job of each human being to reintegrate their noose with their heart, their, their mind with their heart that the mind is the guardian of the heart and keeps these false narratives and these false biases from being acted out into the real world. But we have to be watching ourselves. Uh, like when I start to get angry, I need to be in a place where, okay, this is anger. Why am I getting angry? What's this anger about? Is this a just anger? And how do I moderate it if it is? And if it is not a just anger, what do I need to do to keep the fallout from doing damage to myself and the people around me? But this takes intentionality. It, it takes time. It takes self-awareness. And the devil knows that, and he's just going to keep changing the game. It is a dynamic game. Just because one day you win doesn't mean you're not going to lose tomorrow. Well, and not only that, but uh, not only that, but again, if you're looking for mass casualty, if you're looking for maximum damage, you don't want to just cause one problem. You want to cause several. So like, let's say that you, you, let's say that through, let's say that you fall victim to, let's say that you fall victim to a, a demonic temptation to resentment through some false, uh, through some false flag, you know, about your spouse. Like, you know, something happened, you took something a certain way, whatever, you blow it up in out of proportion in your mind. And the next thing you know, you know, you, you're just, you're not voicing it, but you're bitter and moody and uh you know you're 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 just dealing with them from this false narrative of your own resentment right which of course in your mind and because the narrative is convincing sound per sounds perfectly justifiable to you sin always sounds justifiable um well okay well then how about now it's keeping you up at night and you don't go you know, you don't go up to the room, keeps you up at night, you lose sleep. So now you lose sleep. Well, the devil also knows maybe you've got a drinking problem. So you know what? Uh, forget them. Uh, I am going to, you know, uh, this, this is, this is your treat and this is how you calm the nerves. So now you drink about it. And so you wake up the next day hungover. So now you wake up the next day hungover and you're mean to your kids. And I mean, like how many sins, 
how, you know, he's happy to like, how many sins can this one little false narrative spiral out to? It can, it can, it can spider web out to so many different things. And, and the devil is more than pleased to make that happen. So part of our job of discernment is cutting that off at the pass. Um, and, and Jesus has a very ingenious way of dealing with that because, it, and it's, it's so, it's so common sense. Uh, he said, everyone loves to quote Matthew's gospel where he says, uh, judge, judge not, yes, you, you be judged. Okay. That's great. He does say that. He also says a lot of other things. Um, and to include in Matthew where he actually gives a criteria for, uh, confronting wrongdoing. So, okay. So, all right. So not judging isn't the same as allowing injustice. Not judging isn't the same as not confronting wrongdoing. It's that one seeks to, what Jesus is proposing is actually seeking to solve the problem as opposed to just uh, ruminating about it and, and being judgmental about it. So, so Jesus says, if, if you see a brother sin, go and confront him about it. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Well, okay, well, there you go. You've got the false narrative come in. Let's confront it. And if it gets worked out, great, we let it go. It's done. If he doesn't, you take two or three witnesses uh, and confront the sin again. Well, the objective is to solve the problem. And, you know, metaphorically, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to bring two or three other people into, uh, that you need to bring two or three other people into your problem. What it means is, uh, it could be like, you know, two or three alternatives, uh, you know, say you're, say that the problem is something, you know, it's something real and, and you know, okay, you know, I know this person likes podcasts and books. And so like, look, here's a couple books on the subject. Here's podcasts. So check this out. Or here's what I'm thinking. I mean, you bring in other voices through some kind of means they'll listen to fine. If he doesn't bring that to them, then if he doesn't listen to them, then bring it to the church. And then, you know, you, there's an appeal to authority. But And then he says, well, if they still won't listen, then let him be as a sinner, as a tax collector. You know, and the, the, the Jesus even says there, it's like, well, look, if you can't resolve things, then, you know, it's okay to have real boundaries. And, you know, so this is the same God who says, forgive 70 times seven, but he also leaves the option open to put up boundaries. But at no point in there is he saying, well, you get to be angry and resentful and you're justified for feeling how you do and lashing out. No, it's like, no, like, here's a way to deal with it. And, and even St. Paul will echo that and say, insofar as it lies with you, be at peace with all men, which, you know, you can't control how they're going to handle it. You can't control if they're going to forgive you. You can't control if they'll accept your reconciliation. But as far as your end goes, keep your side of the street clean keep the fence mended and, and the door open on your side and, and forgive on your side. But you know what? Even Jesus has that door there to put that, that option to put up boundaries, but at no point is he saying, you know what? You're justified in being angry and resentful and malicious. So um, once again, like for it, it, the overwhelming majority of these false crises of, you know, sin, the, the, the black psyops of sin would not survive, would not survive that sort of inspection. You know, it, it could survive that inspection if we're still taken up with a passion of anger. Well, that's another problem. There's another layer, but you remove that 
and you get people calm again, you get people rational. It's like, well, rationally, let's talk about this now that we've calmed down. Oh, okay. It turns out we don't really have the problem we had. Turns out there's not the urgency. There's not a crisis. Uh, again, you know, it's layer upon layer, but it is all deception. It is a web of lies. And he's, you know, he's old, so he's good at it. Um, there's a saying in Spanish, el diablo sabe más por viejo que por diablo. The devil knows more because he's old than because he's a devil. And right. it's true. <laughs> it's, it's very true. It is true. It's very yeah, true. He's we, good at what he does. They've been doing it a long time. I mean, C.S. Yeah. Lewis in the screw tape letters alludes to that. I, I have alluded to it. I mean, he's got a lot of time uh, logged on the field. Yeah. I mean, he has been at this a very long time. And when you're at something for such a long time, even if you're not good at it initially, you're going to get pretty good at it over time. I mean, I it's def just when it's definitely just the way it is. Yeah, and definitely better at it than people who haven't been doing it for a fraction as long as you have. Or don't even believe that you exist. Oh, sure. Well, well I mean, look, man, like my, my, my meager hobbyist blue belt jujitsu is not the best in the room. But it's way better than the guy who's there for his first class, and it's 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 just that I've been doing it longer, um, and but it, it, the devil is to co-opt the language of uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous, to misappropriate it uh, for my own purposes, which I unapologetically do. Um, he is cunning, baffling, and powerful, but God is more powerful, and His wisdom is beyond the devil's baffling. And so this is why like the same saint, the same saints who are known like Paisios and Porfirios for casting out demons and uh, and being master exorcists and being healers of men's souls and hearts, they also make a real point of saying, you know, the devil is, as Paisios would say, tangalaki, he's a nuisance. He, he's, he's, if we stick close to Christ and his mysteries and sacraments and his body and his church, and we stick close to his commandments, then the devil has nothing in us. And there's nothing for us to be afraid of. He is a nuisance. He is dangerous to some degree, but the one on our, you know, those who are with us are more than those who are against us. It's like we're, we, we own, he only has a chance at inflicting damage if we start to play his game. But if we never play his game to begin with, then he's pretty useless. Uh, and, and that's, that's the goal of repentance. Well, that's one of the goals of repentance. That's one of the goals of the Lenten season is to so rehabilitate our souls that he doesn't even have a way in and it's like well then you're just powerless and and that's why our hymns constantly speak of the powerlessness of the devil um yeah if we, you know what, what what is what is his machination going to do you know how, how can he, he can't we don't have to battle against his machinations we build up christ and his Virtues and the fruits of the Holy Spirit and the devil's machinations have no way to approach. They have no foothold to get in. And then the gates of hell can't stop us. They cannot withstand our forward press. The trick that, is he will try to get us to play his game. Yeah, there, there's so much happening here. It's really fascinating psychologically. Um, I'm sitting here thinking about what you said about I'm justified in how I feel. Okay, sure, you're justified in being angry that you were wronged, maybe. 
from a worldly perspective, but that even, even if, which I would disagree with, even if you are justified in your anger, you are not justified in remaining in your anger, like you said, but rather, uh, and this is what triggered that, uh, you and I were talking, I think probably last week about that, that Greek, Greek word, uh, in the in the first uh, in the third person uh, singular stegi right uh, and and this word is very old and paul used it in first corinthians 13 verse 7 it's a very ancient word it comes from indo-european you can find it in nordic languages you can find it in all over the place at least it's common root and it means in its most basic sense, to cover. So it gets used for uh, the roof of a house, roof of a house. I don't, wherever you are, you pronounce it differently. So God forgive. It's like, but anyway, it's like the roof of your house, it covers. It's like the hull of a ship covers and and surrounds and protects. It's, uh, you could look at a tarp out in your yard and use the same word that it covers. But then sometimes you'll see that it's also translated as endure or bear. So it it has this implied meaning that not only is it covering, but that it's that it's a long-term covering, that it's there for a purpose, and that it's also protecting that which it's covering intentionally. So when Paul says, love bears all things, it means that, and we'll go right back to our first episodes where we talked about the regiment of soldiers with their shield bearing down and covering the guy next to him. That's love. And that kind of love isn't justified in being angry. That kind of love looks and it says, yeah, I'm angry. Yes, I'm I'm hurt. Yes, there's cognitive dissonance within my soul right now because I'm fighting between being right and having my own way and my own pride and my own understanding of the world. And you just shatter that. And it's not comfortable. It's really, really uncomfortable and it hurts like crazy. But as Christ did it for us, I will do it for you because he wasn't content leaving us in pain. So he came and he endured the pain with us and for us so that we could be examples and live like him and offer that kind of love that bears all things and hopes all things and believes all things and endures all things. So, as and I think that's what Porfirios and Paisios understood. It's like with Christ covering us as a hen her chicks, as Christ covers us with the love and the grace of his holy cross and his precious blood and the giving of the Holy Spirit, so too we are called to bear and to offer that kind of covering love on behalf of each other because in so doing, we cover down on our weak side and the guy next to us and so on and so forth, and the devil has no way in, just as you said. Yeah, and you know the the flip side to that, right? I mean, I... and if we're looking at this verb stangy and we're looking at this covering, if we, if we think about it like a shell, right? We think about it like a shell, for example, because it's a more permanent covering, but sin has that effect too. That some of the, some of the most difficult 
some of the most difficult conversations I've ever had with people is pastorally is breaking through the semi to, to, to the apparently seemingly semi-permanent shell of their own bitterness. They're angry about something. They're bitter about something. I, I, I remember uh, in Raleigh um, doing my best to, to help a woman who had left the Orthodox Church altogether and our parish in particular due to one unpleasant reaction from the priest that they had 20 years ago. But her anger when she, when she, and it, it was a comment that he made that she felt was unkind and whatever, but her anger and her bitterness, like it was like it happened yesterday. It wasn't 20 years ago that that resentment had covered her. It had, it had, it, it really had the quality of Stangy that, that it had covered her. It had built a shell. And so any sort of arrows of goodwill, any sort of arrows uh, of love or reconciliation or even good memories, like, okay, you had this one bad memory, but like, what about the thousands of good ones under this roof that they all bounced off of that shell? Um, so like the wrong things can cover us too. And that happens. Um, yeah. So we, it, we become, yeah, we become the prisoners of, of the logis me and, yeah. and the narrative that, that we buy into. I remember reading something from, from Paul, uh, Porfirio's on depression. And he talked about depression as the human being becoming the prisoner of an idea. Yeah, that's a God, that's a great way to put it. I'm going to think about that all day now. I love that. That's one of the best things I've heard. I, you know, the, and, and I had not seen that quote, so thank you. But I, I will say this, I mean, and here's the thing, if we choose that kind of shell, well, then what are the only things that are going to get through? They're going to be things that correspond with that. So suddenly that becomes the lens and the matrix through which we view all the world. You know, we are an angry, resentful person and the, and that's my shell. So the only things that exist are going to be things that confirm and build up that shell, but we're not going to let the shell break. You know, so it's like, once you, if you allow sin to do that, um, then it it has a compounding effect and it gets exponentially harder around you uh so that's so part of the part of the process of repentance is the breaking of that shell and the building of the new shell of of uh, uh things that should abide right things that should take the quality of stanky like love peace tranquility you know again in, in getting sober right like um, you talk about that transformation of mind and, you know, guys who have been in sobriety a while, they'll talk about serenity and, and speaking of serenity to something, to, to someone who's like recently getting sober or in their addiction is it, just ridiculous. Like to the one who's actively in drinking or just recently out of drinking, there's still a ball of nerves. There's still all this anxiousness. There's still all this self-pity. There's still all this stuff. And the sponsor is going to tell you that you got to fix that in order to stay sober, which means you got to repent. Um, but you know how we speak about treating that serenity. Uh, even the most non-theistic sponsor will speak about it as not breaking my serenity, as if the serenity was a shell, as if the serenity stingy, right? As if the serenity was a shell. 
and we're not going to break it. And we're only going to do things that compound and make that shell stronger because I'd rather live in serenity than in, ang- and then in anxiousness and bitterness and resentment. And, you know, like that's, well, that, that should, for God, for us, that should sound so incredibly Orthodox Christian. So uh, as we yeah. head, as we head into Lent, uh, I do want our listeners to uh, be attentive to winnow through those thoughts be attentive to where what the crises that they believe are crises may in fact be a little more than uh, demonic black psyop to build up the wrong shell and to fill our minds instead with all of the nutrition that will come to us through the services, all of the right things. And we might, we might, by the grace of God, arrive at Pascha with a better shell, with a better uh, with a better semi-permanent housing that allows our minds and our hearts to be true receptacles of grace, true earthen vessels of the Holy Spirit. And that's that's the task before us. Uh, Father Joseph, uh, I do have to run and you have to run, but I want to thank you for uh, I want to thank you for recording today. It is always a pleasure. And I hope that our listeners will share. Uh, find us on Anchor FM, on Facebook and Instagram at On the Battlefield Podcast, and of course on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and everywhere else. And uh, do send us your comments. We do read them uh, and we appreciate all of them. Let's make this more of a dialogue than a monologue. Uh, please close us in prayer, Father. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you and we worship you for the love that you showed us, the life that you gave on our behalf so that we may live a life that is glorifying to you and that is a life of victory, a life of overcoming, a life that is not ruled by black psyops, a life that is not ruled by believing lies of 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 internalizing lies and making them how we live but rather by internalizing you the truth given to us by the holy spirit and that we would be overcomers that we would be victorious in the stewardship that you've given us to show the world what it is to be repentant and humble and thankful for you are one true and glorious God. For you are glorified to the ages of ages in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everyone, thank you for joining us here on the battlefield, and we will see you in a couple weeks. God keep, bless. Keep fighting the good fights, you on the battlefield. Mm-hmm.